This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, it's a reading group episode, and we sit down with the gang to discuss the first half of the Communist Manifesto. My name is Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa. Uh, I post as Jurassic Marks on the website. Joining me tonight is Lexi. Hey, what's up? Lexi from Red Party. Uh, Patrick. I'm also from Red Party. And uh, Donald. Hey, I'm uh, Donald Parkinson from Communist League of Tampa. Okay, so tonight we're going to talk about the Communist Manifesto, which is probably the most famous thing Marx and Engels ever wrote. Uh, a lot of that had to do with the fact that the Communist Party, the Third International, felt that reading it was super important to training party cadre. And so they printed it. They used their state resources to print up an unholy amount of these things and distribute them all over the world. So even in the United States, there were hundreds of thousands of cheap copies of it floating around everywhere. So I think for most people, you know, the Communist Manifesto is the first and in often cases, the last text written by Marx and Engels that most people ever encounter or actually read. Um, so the first thing I just wanted to kind of go around and ask everybody, when did you first come across the Communist Manifesto and what were your original impressions of it? And uh, maybe start with you, Lexi. <laughs> well, I went to a like a public school that was kind of like a private school because of the, you know, Thomas Jefferson, uh, like kind of land taxes. I don't really know how to describe this. Basically, it, it was an incredibly like white suburban school, like kind of stowed out in the woods. Um, so I went to school with like, you know, Keith Richards kids and that kind of shit. So the first time I was ever exposed to the manifesto, it was some conservative kid kind of, you know, impressing me that he had read it. And I was like, well, what's it like? And he told me, well, you know, it's really long and it's terrible. You know, you shouldn't read it. And so, you know, I, I went home and I looked it up and I don't know, it just sort of like went through my brain. I was maybe like, uh, you know, in eighth grade. It didn't uh, strike me that I was reading one of the most influential documents of all time. Kind of like when you watch Seinfeld, you're not aware of how many of the conventions that you're looking at originated with Seinfeld. So it might strike one as kind of boring or something. I think that's kind of what I was feeling when I was reading the manifesto. I had seen references to it so many different places that it was like reading a religious text or a touchstone, like 1984 or the Bible. It was a really like strange elemental cultural experience. So I had a sort of mystical engagement with the text, even though I didn't understand it at all. Uh, what about you, Patrick? With me, I, I read it like freshman year of high school or something like that. And basically, uh, well, I was sort of inspired by it a little bit. Like, you know, just young, left-leaning person. I I was sort of into it, and I had like, I had like tr tried to like write out like my own sort of thing out of it. Like, just like take bits and pieces of like utopian literature and that sort of thing and write my own thing because, you know, I, I was a really dorky kid, dorky, miserable child. So that's that was my experience with the Communist Manifesto. What about you, Donald? 
I mean, I would I would pretty much echo Patrick's experience. I read it. I'm pretty. I I honestly don't remember if I read it in high school or not. I'm pretty sure I did because I read a lot of that type of stuff, and um, I was inspired by it, but I didn't really become a full-on communist, even though I was basically like a anti-imperialist leftist. But um, it wasn't until I kind of made a, a full-on commitment to read all of Marx's works, and I actually read on the Jewish question first. But uh, eventually, I, I by that time I was very impressed with the Communist Manifesto. But yeah, my first my first impressions of it were I didn't exactly you know buy into it instantly. I think it took a, a more I think it took more education me to truly uh, understand it i think yeah it was kind of the opposite like i totally bought into it 100 percent when i first read it and when i first came to it like i basically i grew up in the midwest and you know pretty working class and i was like a christian conservative and i used to like watch fox news and listen to rush limbaugh even when i was like a little kid and so i was like this little i don't know uh, young republican asshole and eventually I think I used to stay up some nights and watch like Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. And I remember at one point, Bill Maher argued that the communism, communism was evil. I think Whoopi Goldberg was on. She's like, no, it's not. I told my dad about this exchange and he goes, well, you know, son, <laughs> communists weren't evil. Uh, they were just misguided more. And which is weird because like my dad was the one who was all into Rush Limbaugh. Like he literally bought the Rush Limbaugh novelty ties and shit that Rush Limbaugh sell, sold. But he had an interesting <laughs> conception of like uh, of communism, just being this kind of misguided ideology that went really wrong, which probably puts him above a lot of liberals, to be honest. Anyway, so I decided to just read the Communist Manifesto for myself and see, you know, what what was in it. And eventually, I found like I found it in some box that was, I think it was like at a church, just like a bunch of books that had been donated. So I found this like old ass copy of it. I just picked it up and read, it and I was like, yeah, this all makes sense. Uh, what's wrong with this? Like, why does everyone, why is everyone so mad about this? Um, and I just kind of forgot about it for a while. And then I sort of picked up communism later in my twenties when I got more into activism and stuff. But, uh, yeah, that was sort of how I came across the text, which is probably a fairly typical experience for a lot of working class people. Uh, because again, it, after the fifties, it became so cheap and was, you could find it everywhere, even if it was sort of pitched as the, you know, the text of the enemy. Um, but and not going around specifically, and I'm just going to throw this out there. So, if those are your impressions reading it initially, what were your impressions sort of returning to it now after you've gotten way deeper into Marxism and read all this shit? Like, how does it how does it read to you now? Well, first, I just want to say that I actually read the RCP's Constitution and Draft Program before I read the Communist Manifesto. Yeah. So I actually <laughs> just real I actually realized that because. Uh, <laughs> My dad had a copy in his old book collection and he let me loot his old book collection. And I was like, oh, communism, this is, I want to read about this. And it was, the, it was, it was the RCP, it's like 1976 program. And I read it all the way through and I was like, I'm not a communist. And so the first time I read the Communist Manifesto around that time, I was kind of like, I was obviously biased by it. But nowadays I definitely come back to it and I see... I you know, just a grand work of literature and political theory and it's it's great great no I mean just like I remember the the sentence that made me realize how pertinent this text was and 
I was revisiting it in college for a history course where they gave you like the textbook interpretation of Lenin and, you know, regarded Marxism basically as all good liberals do as, you know, very wrong. And, oh, just look at this manifesto. It's full of such wrong stuff. And of course, you could point to a few predictions here and there, but there was something that really struck me. And I think when I was reading this, I got a sense of that Hegelian sense of wonder about how history can be so funny and how strange it can be. And it was this, um, the bourgeoisie by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production by the immensely facilitated means of communication draws all, even the most barbarian sick nations into civilization. The cheap prices of commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls with which it forces the barbarians intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. It compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into its midst to become bourgeois themselves. In a word, it creates a world after its own image. And at the time, Chinese uh, communism and its embrace of capitalism was really a hot button topic in terms of you know, labor and politics. And I was just kind of blown away by how true it was and true under conditions that Marx could have never imagined. Hmm. Yeah, that's really, uh, that's really fair. And that you see that with a lot of things. I remember um, when I first sort of came back into Marxism, I went through capital first for the most part. And when I had a really like capital centric reading of it, I used to really kind of in my mind trash the manifesto a little bit. But seeing more of Marx's body of work and understanding the historical uh, context of this a lot more, uh, this text probably as impresses me more, or at least as much as when I first encountered it. There are obviously certain things in it that don't hold up today, but Marx was addressing, Marx and Engels, I should say, were addressing different political circumstances at the time. And I think they addressed them quite well. If no one else has anything on that, let's move on to the text. So it starts, uh, interestingly enough, with the line, a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. Yeah, and it it talks about, because the forces, uh, the communist organizational forces were pretty limited at this point, but it talks about how everywhere it was sort of the big boogeyman of so much of uh, the ruling forces at the time, even disproportionate to their actual organizational capacity. I think that's really interesting. And you even see that now a little bit in the United States with socialism. You know, we're, you know, you have a situation where even somebody like Obama is described as a socialist and everyone's, you know, the right is worried about socialism, but socialist forces are probably at a low point in terms of uh, organizational capacity, at least historically. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how much the far right freaks out about communism and how much the right obsesses about communism, despite how insignificant it is today. So you can only imagine how much worse it would get if, when we, if or when we do become significant, you know. But I think it just shows that it's like such a powerful idea. And it's, it's more than just an idea, but it's almost something that's kind of contained in the logic of capitalist you know, in historical evolution itself, that this idea is just that powerful. And I think the Communist Manifesto, what it does is that it, it captures the core principles of what communism truly is and the, science, and the core principles for a, a scientific form of communism. Yeah, the way that the intro works is great. 
all the reactionary powers in Europe are leaping at phantoms. They're leaping at this. They're haunted by this idea of communism. And, you know, what opposition party hasn't been called communist by its opponents? And it's all, it almost is like, well, you know, who's going to who's going to take this up? You know what? Fuck it. We're going to do it. We're communists. We're, we're them. OK, we're your ghosts. We're we're what you're afraid of. Uh, <laughs> love it. Yeah. Um, so then the next section goes on uh, and it asserts quite famously that the history, the history of all hetero existing society is the history of class struggles. This is a fair. Excuse me. That is so problematic. How could you say that? <laughs> well, it's a fairly modern idea. And it's interesting that capitalism produces this analysis in a way and that the relationship between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat almost retroactively like structures the relationship that Marx and Engels and examine past societies through. And it's interesting how, you know, people talk about how Marxism is teleological and so forth. And in a sense, it kind of is because they do see the development of, you could say the dialectic between pro bourgeois and proletarians as developing towards something. And it makes sense, I guess, that you would only retroactively look at history as a part of that development. Yeah, I mean, I actually defend teleology, basically, because if you if we choose communism as a teleology, as the uh, basically the goal that would redeem all the suffering of the progress of, of the uh, of progress, basically, because, you know, human progress is built on a pile of skulls. And so in a way, like you can almost create a historical vision that's not just scientific, but moral or communism is basically ultimately the redemption of all those who have suffered through the past because of the excesses of class society. So there's, there's many reasons to kind of argue for communism as a, as a telos of history, I think. And I, I think we should be more willing to defend that idea than, you know, is fashionable today, perhaps. I agree with that insofar as the ethical vision of communism is so incredibly powerful. However, I think a lot of the rejection of teleology comes from the idea that there's a material process that will carry us to communism. And I always think this is a terrible misreading of Marx. Um, and that despite the fact that Marx uses language that suggests that he, you know, he's talking about people doing things when he's talking about these great forces. I don't think he sees these things as necessarily in conflict. Yeah, he sees how the material conditions create historic opportunities for the proletarian to triumph in class struggle. But yeah, I don't think that he, I mean, in a sense, I think that he suspects that it is ultimately inevitable. I don't know to what extent Marx could have predicted human society's capacity to destroy itself through the atom bomb or what have you. But from his standpoint, you could see how he argues that the conditions of capitalism will develop things so that productivity gets higher and higher. And sooner or later, you're going to have to eventually figure out a way. You can only produce so much and you can only do so much with people's free time. So on some level, I think he sees it as inevitable, but not at any you know particular point it is possible that the bourgeoisie can delay and delay and delay because um, they only have to win now you know yeah or he just says if eventually civilization itself will just fall apart because the forces of capital will become too much for humanity to reckon with but i think that there is this argument 
it says he just he says it straight up the the, the proletariat the capitalists create their own grave digger the proletariat so it shows that one the capitalism is creating the grave digger but the grave digger still has to dig the grave it doesn't necessarily mean that there's an automatic like tendency for capitalism to bring about its own ruin but i think that the idea that communism is inevitable can be a very powerful historical myth that very much <laughs> brings people into that, that very much like makes people want to fight for it in a way because they feel like history is on their side the, the, think, wind, the wind is at our back and so forth yeah and i think there is a value to this notion that history is on our side because there is we have two choices we can move towards a society where people have less freedom or a society where people have more freedom and and you there can is still a value judgment there but it's still essentially asserting that like we are on a on side of a certain type of history at least well yeah you can see like an enthusiasm con contemporarily uh among even non-marxists or perhaps even not people who aren't of the left for the prospects of automation and the fact that so many jobs are going to be taken out but that's something that the bourgeoisie in power will have to reckon with politically. Now, they're probably going to find the shittiest possible solution in order to maintain and continue their rule. But the prospect of reduced labor time and of having more free time to live your life uh, and the, the idea that that's going to happen due to the technological development of production and science is something that is a tremendously, tremendously animating concept because it gives people something to point to uh, and something to look forward to in the future. Yeah, and it's important for us not to submit to the noble lie or the Cyrillian myth um, as our basis for a belief in a communist to the communism of, of the future. I think that would be a big mistake. I think that it betrays sort of the, the, the spirit of the works of Marx and Engels and what makes Marx and Engels different than the other socialists. Um, well, yeah, I mean, Sorel basically says that, well, Marxism is incorrect. Capitalism isn't going to collapse, but we can create a myth that capitalism is going to collapse and that will bring people into action anyway. So there's, there's obviously something very wrong about that. There's got to be a, uh, something in between, you know, total ideological bullshit, you know, speaking without regard for truth that creates, that supports some kind of political project or, or something. Um, I'm just to speak loosely and something that is purely factually correct in a positivistic sense. There is this, um, the acceleration is called this like an interstitial kind of speaking, you know, it's not, you know, it, I'm not lying. If I say that, you know, I believe that human beings are rational, uh, to a, enough of a point that they're eventually going to figure this out. Because I think that's what Marx is, is stating, too. It's an immense belief in the rationality of humanity. It's an immense belief in the human capacity to understand its own interests. Like, that's also at work in addition to a sort of technological optimism to a degree. Um, and I think the recognition of the technological optimism is, it, you know, like, I don't know, it's, it's controversial, but I think there's a good reason, like you were saying, Jake, to, to appeal to those material processes but it's also unavoidable that we have to say something good about humanity because otherwise we could just, you know, be black mirror. You know what I mean? Like, 
I, right. And I think that's the predominant way people see technology, especially on the left, especially on the left. Yeah, that's well put. Um, returning to the text. So in this section, Marx proceeds to sketch out a summary description of the historical development of political classes and the emergence of the bourgeoisie. I guess the two questions I have, and I can throw this out to anyone who wants to take it. Uh, what does Marx include in this schema and what important parts might he have left out here? Basically, Marx is kind of um, presenting the bourgeoisie as completely liquidating the petty bourgeoisie. And so he kind of presents this picture where both classes are completely divided and they've come to the ultimate head, essentially. They've come to a head, essentially, because there is no longer a middle class, or he sees that tendency coming. And I think that Marx greatly underestimated the growth of the professional, bureaucratic, specialist strata of society that are essentially part of the petty bourgeois. But as it is true that capitalism destroys the peasant and small producer, but it also creates a whole strata of specialist and whatnot that still have an interest in the maintenance of the capitalist system. Yeah, I think that's correct. It's really the middle class problem. And of course, when we talk about middle classes, and I was always surprised that, you know, Engels and Marx are using the, the phrase middle classes, you know, I thought, surely this must be bourgeois propaganda, but you know, like, it's there, like, it's, it's uh, something that they considered, at, at least that they, they're using as, uh, as an analytical category. And I think you can't really talk about class without talking about income whatsoever. Um, in America, we tend to reduce class to income gradients, you know, income levels, whereas a Marxian analysis is more about the labor process or more about social reproduction and property relations. Uh, and in this respect, it would be hard for Marx to see how ownership has changed. Like, what does it mean to lease a vehicle from Uber so that you can pay it off while you're using it? Like, are you, do, do you own that? Um, what does it mean if there's a, a company that's sort of exploiting legal loopholes and property relations uh, to pretend that their employees are small business people when in a sense, in a, you know, production relations sense, maybe in a power relations sense, not, you know, by law, but by fact, the Uber driver is working for Uber despite the legal yeah. documentation. Like, you know, I know Marx, you know, is, is especially well equipped to tackle these problems, but he doesn't predict all of them. Exactly. It's, it's the Uber driver. You can't have a formalistic view of class where the legal contract is what defines your class because then you're just basically defining society the working class is a caste within a class. It's like those who legally work for a wage are the working class. The working class or the proletariat is really the entire, you know, pool of society that is reliant on the wage fund, whether they're employed or unemployed formally. And so you really can't let, you know, the, the formal con the contract of employment the strictly define like what is wage labor and what is not. But reading reading the manifesto, you definitely get the sense that he did see the growth of major industry and its swallowing up of petty commodity production 
as something, I mean, you definitely get the impression from this that they view like a future uh, sort of generalized immi immiseration uh, of the proletariat. Like I'm just looking at this passage here, uh, the lower strata of the middle class, the small tradespeople, shopkeepers, and retired tradesmen generally, the handicraftsmen and peasants, all these seek, sink gradually into the proletariat, partly because their diminutive capital, capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on and is swamped in the competition with large capitalists, partly because their specialized skill is rendered worthless by new methods of production. Thus, the proletariat is recruited from all classes of the population. And I feel like maybe perhaps different uh, historical developments, you know, sort of in recent decades have could definitely complicated that schema to a certain extent. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's part of that ironic cunning of history that Marxist communist regimes were responsible for proletarianizing a bunch of traditional property relations. Capitalism isn't necessarily as thorough as Marxists thought. I think, you know, I think this is kind of unavoidably true. Like Marxists and including Marx, this really does go back to Marx, didn't have as, as much of a sense that uh, that capitalism would leave traditional property relations intact in the formal subsumption sense uh, where, you know, kind of like the Roman Empire, they allow things to go on as it was, but they just, you know, they profit off of it now instead of the traditional class elite. Um, Marx tended to think that formal subsumption would always give way to real subsumption eventually. And yeah, that's true. I, I suppose under a large enough of a time scale, it's possible that that is true. Um, but it's one of those things that one of those historicist claims that's extremely difficult to verify, to falsify. Well, the thing is that there are certain labor processes that just by the nature of the labor process are difficult to mechanize and then, you know, so therefore, yeah, you still have like, you know, large immigrant labor forces that are under coercive conditions picking fruit today. But I think where Marx is correct in the manifesto and his whole kind of teleology of capitalism is that, and I, I hate to quote him, but Julius Avola, the classic fascist reactionary, said, <laughs> he says that capitalism is just as subversive as communism. And I think that he actually gets Marxism better than some people do because he sees how capitalism actually is a subversive and revolutionary system because it's destroying patriarchal property relations. And because of that, it does destroy an aspect of how much whole tradition has over society. It does give women more freedom because it reduces the home as a location of production. And because of that, women are able to assert political interests and fight for things like suffrage and sexual freedom and whatnot. So in a way, Marx is correct in the manifesto that capitalism is making society change at a rate faster than ever before, and that it does open up entirely new potentials for human liberation, and that you can't just have a completely negative reaction to capitalism, but rather a, a positive vision that transcends it rather than just negates it. Did anyone else have any thoughts on this section uh, before we move on? Yeah, I thought, well, what's interesting about it was the prediction itself was how 
you would see like later on as the middle class was more threatened, like certain segments of the middle class was more threatened, threatened them. The language of the peasantry would be incorporated into uh, fascism specifically, like the development of fascism. Like you see it heavily in German propaganda, the talk of the peasantry and the traditional family that is directly associated with the middle class. You're talking about blood and, and soil nationalism and all that. Yeah, yeah, specifically, yeah. Like yeah, um, I see what like, you're saying. Like the idea about the peasant and the small proprietor can be revolutionary, but by the time yeah. of World War II, those people are performing as the mass base of reaction. Yeah, pretty much. It's even like, it's even in Mein Kampf when Hitler talks about living space. He's specifically, the plan is basically set up to like create an agrarian utopian version of Germ Germania. Yeah, in the section, Marx talks a little bit about both like the lower middle class and the the lumpen proletariat. Uh, maybe just read this section mm. really quick. Uh, the lower middle class, the small manufacturer, the shopkeeper, the artisan, the peasant, all these fight against the bourgeoisie to save from extinction their existence as fractions of the middle class. They are therefore not revolutionary, but conservative. Nay more, they are reactionary, for they try to roll back the wheel of history. If by chance they are revolutionary, they are only so in view of their impending transfer into the proletariat. They thus defend not their present, but their future interests. They desert their own standpoint to place themselves as that, that of the proletariat. The dangerous class, lumpen proletariat, the social scum, the passively rotting mass thrown off by the lowest layers of the old society, here may, here and there, be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. Its conditions of life, however, prepare it far more for the part of the bribed tool of reactionary intrigue. Let's just be honest. I mean, I think the lumpen as a class, it's 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 a divided class because people within the lumpen, if we consider the lumpen proletariat the black market, you know, production within the black market, that there is division within that people have different relations to production there. Like the kid who who hawks street drugs on the corner may make only as much as a wage laborer, whereas the, the top tier drug boss is making far more obviously and so right. it's just the same as like the pimp and the and, and the sex worker don't have the same interest there's uh, a lot that complicates the lump in basically is what i'm saying yeah i've even I, i'm sympathetic to a way of thinking about marx's work that um that really feels like lumpen is kind of uh you might say reifies the morality of society and the legality Kind of relation to society i mean it can be useful it can be useful to point out maybe the black market or something but it's really better to talk about the surplus uh proletariat and to talk about the black market directly than to kind of engage with this pretty moralistic term even when you try to turn this on its head like with the black panthers and the young lords it tends towards illegalism it tends still towards reifying respectability and legality no matter which way you turn it yeah because most proletarians aren't 100 percent followers of the law let's just face it like yo most small business people can't i mean you can't stay in business too like most people break the law most yeah, people most drive people, above most, the speed limit yeah <laughs> and no one no one is you know, like every the lumpen is is within us all we've, all used, we've all used torrents back in the day everyone i know used to steal cable 
Yeah, yeah. One last thing regarding um, Patrick's point about uh, the kind of agrarian, you know, fascist uh, narrative and uh, propaganda and that kind of stuff. There's a link to that and the way that the workers movement was sort of stymied in the United States and was kept at bay. They, instead of incorporating like a big post-war faux socialist welfare state, as they did in Europe as the post-war settlement, we had a highly racist housing program that made a lot of people feel as if they were denizens of a agrarian utopia. And this idea of the middle class became much more ideologically important in the United States. And it had really, it was faced with a situation where most of the productive capacity of the world had been destroyed in a, in a war and the United States productive capacity was mostly intact. So it ha had an enormous economic advantage. It was able to put through the Marshall Plan and Bretton Woods and restructure the entire world economy on its basis. And it could use these surpluses to fund this, you know, reactionary agrarian utopia and take out the radical influence in the workers' movement through outright reaction, uh, you know, near fascism, really, like McCarthyism. There's a really Marxist base of understanding why we didn't have the kind of racist workers' movement that maybe Australia had. Like, we, you know, we had one, but it just didn't get as radical. Like, that part got stamped out. Okay, so the second section is proletarians and communists. The section begins by describing the nature of the communist parties and how they differ from other tendencies. It says, the immediate aim of the communists is the same as that of all other proletarian parties. Formation of the proletariat into a class, overthrow of the bourgeois supremacy, conquest of political power by the proletariat. And I was struck by that phrase, formation of the proletariat into a class. Uh, what do we think Marx and Engels meant by this? Well, there's a famous quote from the 18th Brumaire where he essentially says that um, the proletariat is nothing but a mass to be exploited until it forms its own institutions and its own means of contesting itself politically. And so I think that what he's doing is he's making a distinction between workers as mere wage laborers and the proletariat which is a collectivity of wage laborers acting as a class that have class consciousness that are basically organized. Like Bordiga goes as far to say that the proletariat does not exist if it doesn't have its own party. So that basically the idea is that the proletariat has to form itself as a class through political action to find itself as a class of common interests and whatnot. If that makes sense. It's a, it's 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 because a lot of it's it's very contrary to the ideas of class that a lot of workerists and anarcho-syndicalists and Trotskyists, etc., have. It's a political definition of class. It's not a sociological definition of class, and that's very attractive. It's part of what Marx is really talking about when it comes to class politics: is forming the self-identified proletariat. On the one hand, of course, this is attractive. On the other hand, if that's the case, then there is no more proletariat. <laughs> and we kind of have to default on a sociological reading of class. Or at least an economic one. Well, yeah, yeah. I, that's I what mean, I'm kind I of talking that, about. 
like economics I, I, being at the base of sociology. I wouldn't go as far to say that there is no proletariat. There's just yeah, that's that's scary. I don't like it. Well, I'm I'm <laughs> doing a reducto ad absurdum. You know what I mean? We yeah. can't just rely it's just a, the proletariat the political concept. Ever since you know the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of neoliberalism, the proletariat as a collectivity, as a class with a consciousness does not it hardly does exist i guess it, it is weaker than ever like you still do see outbursts of class consciousness and small minorities of class consciousness but it's not nearly at the same level as it was even in the 1970s yeah i'm well and you yeah but even in the 70s you had uh, i think the autonomous theorists who would try to look at because so much of uh theorization about the development of capitalism at the time was forced was focused on the bourgeoisie as like the main political agents, but they sort of subverted that and tried to look at how the proletariat, even in absence, absent a high level of uh, direct organization, would was be able to affect the composition of capitalism and class struggle and so forth. So, uh, you know, even in an economistic sense and even in a political sense, absent organization, um, the proletariat still kind of exists and has some agency, but it, it can't, uh, I guess, impose its interests or fight for them in a direct way, it can only, you could maybe say, subtly resist through mostly negative um, individualized efforts that sort of gradually kind of sort of add Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so atomized that it's basically forced to individualistically resist against capital rather than collectively resist against capital as a political subject. Right. It's just stuff like, you know, taking a 20 minute shit at work. It's the same thing like in the Soviet Union. The workers were so atomized and they had no ability to form their own institutions as workers, as a class, that they were essentially reduced to simply individualized forms of resistance that were, you know, like you said, taking a 20 minute long shit at work. Just, just doing the bare minimum off. necessary to not get fired, you know? Yeah, just showing up to work drunk, getting drunk at work, you know? There's all kinds of ways that, there's all kinds of ways that we cope with, you know, work and in individualistic ways that, you know. Yeah, there is a sense in which this is, I would say, like, pre-political. This is the, the grist for the mill of uh, proletarian class politic, but of course, reduced to individual acts of insubordination leaves people very vulnerable. Right. And the autonomists, yeah, you know, you have to admire the autonomists in a way, in the same way that, you know, you had like uh, critical race theorists and feminists want to like see more agency in their, you know, favored populations. They're, they w didn't want to just view, you know, women and black people and, you know, the working class as, you know, passive subjects that are getting things thrown at them and being defined by their whole surroundings. They wanted to give them a sort of ethical, ethical dignity that I think, I think it's, you know, good to want to do on the one hand. On the other hand, it's, it's clear that there's an enormous power differential and these, this dignity of choice that, that our, our favorite subjects do have is incredibly limited. And the autonomists have to eventually resort to desperation measures to see everything as politics. Because, you know, politics, as we know it, disappears for them. Yeah, it's kind of what Adolf Reed talks about with um, infrapolitics, this idea that um, just individual cultural subversive things that people do 
are way are like a are a form of politics that's just as legitimate as collective politics, and so therefore, it's it's a reflection in academia of the as of the defeat of collective politics and whatnot and the replacement of the liberal atomized subject. So the next section gets into different forms of property relations. Uh, I'm just going to read this passage here. All property relations in the past have continually been subject to historical change consequent upon the change in historical conditions. The French Revolution, for example, abolished feudal property in favor of bourgeois property. The distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. But modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products. That is based on class antagonisms on the exploitation of the many by the few. In this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. So I guess this begs the question, would there be a form of property under communism and what might that look like according to Marx and Engels? There would have to be some, some form of property regard, regardless if we're gonna play the nominalistic game that Marxists do that say, oh, well, I'm gonna call this, so this thing that you can get rid of, um, you know, I'm gonna call this property. And even though people will still use things after property is gone, you know, there's no property, you know, like, there, people are still going to use things and there's going to be some way people use things. And so I, I don't think it's too scandalous that they don't say that there's going to be abolition of property. You know, like I think some people would be like, oh, you know, it's so like kind of revolutionary. But yeah, it's just it's it's hilarious how down the earth that Marx and Engels actually are about these things compared to modern communists, because like some communist edgelord, some communizer edgelord would be like, no, everyone will eat together and everyone will sleep in like the same communes. Hell yeah, we coming for that toothbrush. Yeah, like <laughs> they almost actually are coming for that toothbrush, like. But yeah, it's in personal property versus private property. It's one of the first yeah. things that I think you all come to understand as a socialist that basically, and the best way he explains this is for nine tenths of the population, private property has already been abolished. Like, <laughs> you know, he's explaining to, to the worker right there that just because you own your own, you know, things doesn't mean that under communism, you won't own your own things. It just means you won't be able to own capital and exploit other workers to for the profit. That's really all it means. It just means that the, the system of bourgeois private appropriation is going to be abolished, that they won't be able to, uh, that the bourgeoisie won't be able to accumulate a surplus through, through private property anymore. It does leave open the question though, okay, so we're not going to have capital relations. We're not going to have surf relations. We're not going to have slave relations. We're going to live in a classless society. We're all going to have a fundamentally equal re relationship to property in a certain de facto and, you know, de jure, like legal sense. Great. How, how the fuck do you accomplish that? Like, we're not coming for that toothbrush. We have certain regimes of personal property to draw what private property means a little more. I usually try to explain it as private ownership of productive property, natural property, natural resources, things that are related to, to large social goods. Like even if, you know, even if let's say something like Google was only run on a few servers in someone's 
garage, it's still so important that, you know, that that wouldn't be <laughs> it, that wouldn't be appropriate for that to be, you know, in private use, because if you, you switch things around on Google, it has immense social effects, let's say. I don't know. Yeah, there'd have to be some kind of base almost. And we might be getting beyond my pay grade of what I'm comfortable committing to, like on a podcast, but <laughs> like you'd almost have to have, again, there have to be prohibitions on one, using your property to exploit other people. I think there would, of course, would be abolition of intellectual property. So if you had like the Google example, oh, easy. you know, you'd be easy to, yeah, to generalize that because you could just take whatever they were doing and replicate it, which I think would be true about a lot of elements in production generally, especially yeah. on a mass scale. Uh, but there would have to be there would have to be rules against people setting up quid pro quo relationships for the exchange of goods at least uh, maybe at least you know on a certain scale perhaps like if somebody was like sitting on top of the general social search in as was like okay you want to search what do you got what are you going to give me you know like that obviously that person would have to be i don't know sent to re-education camps or give it a spanking i don't know yeah hard to say like hard to say exactly how one handles this and this is always the argument that libertarian philosophers bring up that right. you know when you, when you try to create patterns you necessarily have to infringe on liberty uh, of course they don't care that patterns can preserve liberty right uh, but you know they're only concerned with liberty for the best people because they're the best right uh speaking of horrible libertarian arguments about um patterns or whatever i'm almost i'm getting these sort of weird flashbacks to this one time that i was on like an ancap ancap like youtube show brought up stefan mullen stefan's um argument about about the ovaries being a part of the means of production it, it was oh. like it was just an awful experience and you know i think it's very 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 important to like explain to people that when we talk about private property we mean what is things that are used to make stuff like we're talking about commodity production what is used to use in the process of commodity production i'm going to use that thing you said uh ovaries as part of the means of production as a wonderful segue <laughs> um mark talks a little bit about value theory but rather than in the condensed version but rather than recapitulate that let's move on to the section where he actually kind of talks about gender a little bit oh yeah and I just want to read this uh, in a quote because he's basically responding to accusations at the time that um, communists were wife swappers or whatever. But I just want to read this because I think it's kind of amusing. Uh, but new communists would introduce a community of women, screams the bourgeoisie in chorus. The bourgeois sees his wife as a mere instrument of production. He hears that the instruments of production are, are to be exploited in common, and naturally, he come to no other conclusion than the lot of being common to all will likewise fall to the women. He has not even a suspicion that the real point aimed at is to do away with the status of women as mere instruments of production. For the rest, nothing is more ridiculous than the virtuous indignation of our bourgeois, the community of women, which, they pretend, is to be openly and officially established by the communists. The communists have no need to introduce community of women. It has existed almost from time immemorial. Our bourgeois, not content with having wives and daughters of their proletarians at their disposal, not to speak of common prostitutes, take the greatest pleasure in seducing each other's wives. Bourgeois marriage is, in reality, a system of wives in common. And thus, at the most, what the communists might possibly be reproached with is that they desire to introduce, in substitution for a hypocritically concealed and openly legalized community of women, 
For the rest, it is self-evident that the abolition of the present system much bring, must bring with it the abortion of the community of women springing from that system, i.e. of prostitution, both public and private. The communists are further reproached with desiring to abolish countries and nationality. Mm, that's another can of worms. Also, you said abortion, which is such a good uh, Freudian slip. I love it. Yeah. Although, I, I, I wonder how much of that is like a translation issue. Oh, was the, is the translation? Did the translation say abortion of the community of women? Uh, oh, did that? Oh, you know what? That was a Freudian slip. Shit. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Hey, every miscarriage is a work accident. Anyway, um, I thought that was an amusing bit of a uh, bit of a uh, sort of moral jujitsu or whatever on their part. Yeah, and it also introduces very early this comparison and you know economic structural critique of marriage as being the mirror of sex work right which is a very powerful and radical critique that many marxists need to like really grapple with because it's right it's right here yeah and I also think it's um, the fact that he accuses the bourgeoisie of seeing their wives as property, which is, you know, introducing the idea that, you know, marriage, the wife is the first form of private property and that marriage is ruined in these patriarchal class relations, which are very much um, class relations of production. And uh, he basically throws it back at the bourgeoisie and says, well... You already have, you know, you already see women as property. So, of course, if we talk about abolishing private property, you're going to freak out that we're going to come take your wives from you because you see them as your property. And it, it just, um, it's a very radical position because patriarchal notions that women were property were still very common at this time. And, like, Proudhon basically still believed this. Like, other socialists still, you know, saw women as property at this period. And Marx is you know making an argument against that basically and it almost reminds me of like uh the, the uh the kind of uh fear from like white supremacists that you know if we gave um we gave full political freedom to um the black population of the u.s that the, their white women were going to be under attack because when the communists were first organizing in the jim crow south a common like poster that KKK members would put up was that um, communism is race mixing. And, you know, so this, it was this, the idea that like communism will mean that like men will no longer control the, the women that they see as their property is a very common theme you see in reactionary stuff. So up next, there's a note on, there's a little bit on internationalism and how important it is, but I want to skip part. down to the end and get to uh, the set of demands that come at the end of the section. Um, and they preface it by saying that the measures will, of course, be different in different countries. Uh, nevertheless, in most advanced countries, the following will be pretty generally applicable. One, abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes, a heavy progressive or graduated in income tax, abolition of all rights of inheritance, confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels, Centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. 
extensions of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into the cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. Equal liability to all work, uh, establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture, combination of agriculture with the manufacturing industries, general abolition of all by the distinction between, or general abol gradual abolition of all of the distinction between town and country by a more equitable distribution of the populace over the country, free education for all children in the public schools, abolition of children's factory labor in its present form, combination of education with industrial production. Um, so some of this has already kind of just been happened through the development of capitalism and through class struggle. Some of this seems very specific to the mode of capitalist production at the time and the way that it was developing. Um, but some of it holds up today as well. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on that? In general, I think it holds up pretty well. Um, there's a, a kind of classical Italian left communist uh, or Bordigist kind of uh, notion of invariance. And there's a sort of mystical version of this that is just sort of talking about the red thread you know, of, of uh, the essence of communism, the essence of what Marx was getting at. And then there's like a really concrete version of this that looks at this fucking program right here in front of us um, and says, in this program are political demands based on like the elementary economic analyses, like the kind of laws that Marx was really, let's be honest, just beginning to analyze. Um, and that this program still contains a lot of our where political direction should be going as communists and i would actually agree with that like abolition of property and land ab application of all rents of land to public use heavy progressive graduated income tax and oh we have a progressive tax we have a graduated income tax but we don't have a heavy one and we have a lot of regressive taxes abolition of rights of inheritance it's totally fucking that's revolutionary still. You remember the debates around the death tax in the 90s, you know? And on an international level, even the stuff, I mean, I kind of, I'm tempted to sort of poo-poo the stuff about agriculture because, you know, I live in the United States, but in there is still a great deal of the peasantry globally that, you know, needs to be incorporated into, I guess, the world system of production. So, yeah, I mean, exporting sort of agricultural instruments in order to, uh, increase agricultural production globally would be a factor even now if somehow we you know seize global power so basically the bordigas are right in that we do have the invariant program <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think that when you look at this we're looking at like broadly speaking some very essential demands for like a transition out of capitalism even the part about like free education is somehow becoming more relevant now than ever because like yeah with specifically with like college almost becoming incredibly unaffordable and with student loans and like the rise of charter schools like one of the few things that was worthwhile about the development of industrial capitalism was that we got like sort of free public education but now with the development of modern capitalism we're losing that we are specifically losing our right to education. Yeah. yeah, there's like no reason to think that progress is permanent, basically. All of our rights that we win and fight for can be taken away from us just as easily, basically. Yeah, I mean, shit, I guess Bordigo was right. I mean, wait, I think like what Kotsky says in this article is the Communist Manifesto is still obsolete, or is it? Is it obsolete? It's... um. 
to what extent is the Communist Manifesto obsolete? It's from 1901. It's from Kotsky's, you know, non-lame period. But um, he says that basically um, there's certain there's certain principles that the Communist Manifesto has that are still always going to be relevant. But even like something here with you know, because we. But he says that there are certain it. things that it still gets wrong. He says it it's a, it needs to be comprehended as a historical document, but at the same time, there are certain you know eternal principles that it manifests. And the reason they're eternal is because they're relative to the capitalist mode of production. Yeah, the capitalist mode of production itself rising gives these ideas, gives the structures for these ideas to come to existence. Well, and that's a good point that like Patrick brought up too about education. And you sort of see how there really are kind of political limitations to the capitalist mode of production, because even as it develops to such an extent, it, it almost hits a certain limit and tries to go backwards, despite the fact that it would be like even look at something for instance he talks about uh centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state right well that sounds kind of backwards because everyone talks about how the internet is so dispersed and you know there's it's like silicon valley sort of pv ideology behind the development of all this stuff but if you think about it municipal fiber optics would be way faster and cheaper than you know this sort of dispersed competing monopolies and fiefdoms of the, these major telecom providers um, that we have right now, and you could have a more free and open internet if everybody had it and you used uh, the central power of the state to develop more efficient uh, networks that would go to everyone. Um, and so you see how cap, yeah, there is like within capitalism, despite the fact that it has these dynamics that allow it to expand production and you know increase the means of production and so on and so forth, there are political limitations to it that keep it from realizing the full potential that it's capable of and bring us back to things that it seemed like we were politically beyond uh, previously. So maybe we should like cut it here halfway, pick up the rest of it next time. Is there, uh, does anyone have any uh, parting thoughts on the first half of it though? Um, in Lenin Rediscovered, Lars Lee says something about uh, Kautsky believing that the merger formula, the workers movement plus socialism it basically is just a distilled version of the communist manifesto because in the you know the first couple chapters you have a description of workers and you know their coming movement then you have a description of socialists and then you have a description of what kind of combination you, you need to get of socialists and workers to make a distinct communist tendency and then you get to the last part that's like, all right, now go do it. Yeah, that's basically true. The Communist Manifesto is basically just a, a theoretical argument for the merger formula. And what's great is that the 1850 address is basically saying how you do it. But um, I guess we'll, uh, we'll end on that note and continue our discussion in a couple of weeks. So that's it for this week. Uh, thanks to our panel again for joining us. Uh, if you want to shoot us an email, you can get a hold of us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you want to leave a review on your preferred podcast utilization outlet, uh, we'd certainly appreciate it. Uh, until next time, uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>